morning. Trip, is it okay if I use this mic for preaching? Okay, I can go. All right. I'm John, one of the pastors here. So glad to be uh, back here with you all after uh, some time away. So let's pray and we'll get right into God's word. Pray with me. Uh, Father, I pray that as we come to your word today that we would be reminded that um, you are not a God that uh, wants our submission to you to be uh, begrudging and forced, Father. Um, You are a God that wants our joyful submission, joyful obedience. Would you remind us that as we follow your voice that uh, you're leading us to joy. You're leading us to delight and not just a duty, Father. Would that be increasingly more clear as we read from your word today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know all of y'all here in this room, but I do know something about everybody here in this room. And the one thing that I know about all of us here in this room is this. uh, You want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. What I'm not saying is, do you think that you deserve to be happy? But everybody wants to be happy. Happiness is made up of a few things, right? The first thing that it's made up of is the circumstances that come our way, and it's outside of our control. We can't choose that any more than when we sit down to eat at a restaurant, we can choose what's on the menu, right? Or what's there is what what's there. The lot that you have in life is the lot that you have in life. The spouse that you have right now is the spouse that you have. The job that you have is the job that you have. The relational conflict that's in your life that you have is what you have. The circumstances that you have are there. That's your lot. You can't change those things. It's outside of your control. But you do have something that's inside of your control. And do you know what that is? Your choices. So you go to a restaurant, a menu is plopped down in front of you, and you can choose what you want. And based on how you choose, based on what you choose, is the difference in between being joyful and happy or sad and frustrated. It's as basic as when we go out to eat. This past week, me, Richard, and... Uh, Mo went to eat at uh, Crog Street Market, and as we eat, uh, uh, we get what we're going to eat, and I'm getting ready to choose these fries, and the guy says that you can have the uh, normal fries or garlic fries, and so I'm like, I'll take the garlic fries. I made a choice. I thought I would be joyful at the end, but then when they brought out what was garlic soup with like three fries in it, I realized that I made the wrong choice. Sadness. It's as basic as the food that we choose. But listen, it's it's as big as everything else that comes our way. So think of all the choices that you make. The job that you have. Do you choose the right one or the wrong one? The spouse that you have. Do you choose the right one or the wrong one, the family that you have, the house that you live in, 
And it's not like we just choose these things one time and we're good, but each choice lends itself to a bunch of other choices. If you hate your job, then what do you do? Do you stay or do you leave? If you dislike your spouse, what do you do? Do, do, do you stay or do you leave? If your, spouse is, if your spouse is unfaithful, do you forgive or do you leave? And all of these things are compounded. And our lives are filled with these. It's been said that each person makes about 35,000 choices per day. You choose the clothes that, 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 that you're going to wear, the route that you take to work, what you're going to eat, who you're going to vote for, what you're going to, uh, who you'll forgive, who you won't forgive. Our lives are filled with so many choices, and you and I feel like our joy depends on making the right choices, and we spend so much time on the things that we choose that we neglect the fact that the most important thing isn't what you choose. The most important thing is not what you choose, but your standard of choosing, how you choose. I'll put it like this. The most important thing is not the choices that you make, but it's how your choices are shaped. I'll put it like this. The most important thing is not your choices, but the voices that come in to inform what it is that you choose. What you find out is that this, whoever gives you directions determines the destination that you get to. A few years ago, uh, the iPhone replaced Google Maps with their own maps, and it was a failure, right? Uh, I remember the first time that I used it, I was trying to get to Atlantic Station, and I said, Siri, take me to Atlantic Station, and what I got was driving directions to the Atlantic Ocean, and I said, that's, that's, that's not where I'm trying to uh, get. Wrong voice. The voices that inform how you choose determine the destination that you get to. What's most important than the specific things that you choose, all of those are byproducts of how it is that you choose. And so what I want to spend the bulk of our time today is, is how do we choose happiness? Whose voice do we listen to? And I'll give away where I'm going to go with all of this. And it's just this. You know, following God's directions or to follow his voice leads us to a happy ending. Following God's directions leads us to, an, to a happy ending. And I say all of that to say this. One, um, as we come to the truths of Scripture, it is not rocket science. So I just want to spend the bulk of my time today proving why this is the case, showing how it is that we fail to do this, and then at the end, I just want to remind you that what we don't need are complex, crafty, witty statements about how God's word is true. The plain, ordinary, straightforward things that God gives us in his words, they work. They're more than enough to change our lives. So I want to spend our time and look at the straightforward way that God leads us to being happy. So if you would turn with me to Psalm uh, 1. Psalm 1. 
If you don't have a Bible, there's one that should be un, 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 under your chair, and we'd be on page 290, Psalm 1. As we get there, I just want to say a quick word about the inspiration of the Bible. When we say that word, what we mean is that the words of Scripture are God's words. God worked through man to write down these words on the page so that what they wrote is exactly what he would have us read. And so I want you to know this. The order of the books is not inspired. So it's not like you have to read Galatians before you get to Ephesians, right? Things don't really work that way. The book of James was one of the first books in the New Testament written. The order of the books at times is inconsequential. It really doesn't matter. But the order in the books does matter. Things build off of one another. The order that these books were written are important. And so as we come to the book of Psalms, right, it's a book where while the rest of God's word uh, speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us, they capture every emotion that we go through. Folks go to the Psalms to cheer them up. If they face hard times, where can I find joy? It's funny that the very first Psalm, a book that's meant to deal with all of our subjective emotions, starts off with an objective word about God's word and the truth of God's word. And so there's three things that I want us to see here. First of all, as we read this psalm, there is no imperative. So there's no instruction. There is no, you should do this. This Psalm 1, it kind of starts off and it's this poem that's a story. And this story lays out two paths. And so I have three points. The very first point is this, that the first thing that we see here is we find a happy ending that doesn't end. The next point that we see is a sad ending that is certainly coming. And then the third point is the difference maker. Happy ending that won't stop. Sad ending that's sure to come. And the third point is what or who makes the difference. Psalm 1, we're starting in uh, verse 1, and it starts off with these words. How happy. Depending on the translation that you have, you'll see the word blessed. Um, and the best translation of that word blessed is this, oh, how happy. So this book that's aimed at capturing every human emotion that we go to to lift our souls, starts off with these words, how happy. And one thing that we have to do at the start is you have to make the decision right now, do you think that this is true? Do you think that what comes after this is actually going to prescribe to us the way that we're happy? If you do, then you'll read this with an eager anticipation and joy. If you don't, you'll read it with skepticism, but I want you to know that this starts off and it's trying to show us the pathway to be happy. I'm going to read verse one through three and it says this, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. 
He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This story starts off the way that all fairy tales end. At the end of a fairy tale, you'll get to the end and it says, so-and-so lived happily ever after. The beauty of this poem is that we don't have to wait until the end. It starts off where every one of us hopes to be. It gives us a happy ending that doesn't seem to end. And I just want to start off and say this really clear. God is concerned with your happiness. God is concerned with your happiness. He is not an employee that is just concerned about you doing the things that he would want you to do. He's not just trying to get production out of you. He's trying to lead you towards joy. Now, God is not primarily concerned with your happiness in that there are times where he will do certain things to sacrifice your happiness for your health. In the same way that I want my daughter to be happy, but at month two, at month four, at month six and eight, she's going to get vaccinations. And in the meantime, she's not going to be very joyful when she gets the shot. But I'm more concerned about her health than I am her being happy. This is true with God, but I want you to know God is concerned with you being happy or joyful. If the picture that you have of a God in your mind is that he's only trying to get something out of you or from you, I want you to know that that's not the picture that we have here in the Bible. And the question that I have is, do you believe that? Is that the thought that guides the way that you conduct your Christianity? That as God speaks, he's concerned with leading me towards this path. The book of Psalms starts off with these words to convince us in this direction. And so what he's going to do in verse 1, 2, and 3, he's going to give us these steps of sorts to being joyful or to be happy. And and the very first step that he gives us is a sidestep. He tells us what to avoid, what to steer clear from. Psalm 1, how happy is the one, right here, who does not... Walk in the advice of the wicked, stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. If you think that anytime somebody gives you a restriction, they're trying to take away your joy, then you're misinformed. It's the same way that your mom or dad would say, how happy is the person that keeps their hands off of a hot stove? God's saying right here, how happy is the person that what, and he gives specific things right here. Firstly, does not walk in the advice of the wicked. It deals with our thinking. He's saying, how happy is the person that as they're trying to find joy or peace in this life, blocks out the voice of people who aren't saying the same things that God does. How happy is the person that is vigilant, first and foremost, of guarding the people that they listen to? How happy is the person that when they seek advice and they're doing something that they know that they shouldn't do, don't go to people that would say, well, I would have done the same thing if I were you. 
there was a time, I'm sure when David wrote this, where one of the ways to avoid the advice of sinful folks was to just pull away and to get some alone time. Stay away from them. If, I don't, if I'm not in their presence, then I don't have to hear the things that they say. You and I are at a disadvantage because even when we aren't in the presence of actual people, we are on our phones and avatars are giving us all kinds of advice. Let me say this as well. Wicked people and wicked advice can attach itself to noble causes. So it's not just like, I have to avoid the people that are telling me to go and cheat on my wife, although you need to do that. But a wicked voice can can attach itself to a noble cause, and we have to look no further than the history of Christianity with the Crusades when they were so concerned with the end of producing a world that submitted to God that they said, hey, let's pick up arms and go to war. Let's beat everybody into submission. Let's beat the paganism out of people. That's a wicked advice to a noble cause. And in our day and age, it may not be the Crusades, but all this, everybody that talks about justice isn't worth listening to. Especially if the posture in which they speak of these things are filled with malice, with pride, with condescension, and all the wicked things that Galatians 5.16 says aren't becoming of Christians. Blessed is the person that stays away from that. And once they get a hint of that, they see hot stove, I'm not going to touch it. He keeps going. Here's what you sidestep. Or folks that stand in the pathway of sinners. This is about how folks behave. As Christians, we ought to stand out, not stand in. So though we may be in the presence, there is something about how we behave, the pattern that we live that just doesn't fit in. Blessed is the one who stands out and doesn't stand with, or the third one, or sit in the uh, company of mockers. Sitting is when you're rested. It's who you belong to or belong with. And he says, blessed is the one who isn't at home when he sits in the presence of the folks that think that the commands that God give are a joke. The best biblical picture of this comes in Genesis 13 and 19, and you see a guy by the name of Lot. Abraham and Lot have to decide where they're going to go, and what they do is part ways. In Genesis 13, Lot parts ways, and what he does is, is he just starts to walk, and he stands near Sodom. In Genesis 19, as God is preparing to come in and to destroy Sodom and warn him, what we see is that Lot is sitting at the gate with the rest of the elders. He's made himself at home. He's cheering for their sports teams. Who do you find yourself the most at home with? Who do you feel like you can be your real self around, and who do you feel like you have to be uh, put a mask on for? Is it when, man, I just need to be around folks that are real, that are going to, 
that cuss when they're mad, are going to slap folks, that are going to say things how they are. They are real. I can't stand church folks because instead of going with their impulses, what they do is they try to restrain them and constrain them, and that's not real. Who do you feel most at home with? What he's saying is happy is the man who doesn't feel at home when he's surrounded by people that mock, that are bitter. Happy is the person that stays away from all of that, that sidesteps it. And he starts off with all of this to make us serious about what it is that you and I avoid. Diligent about sidestepping things that are going to come into our life. Things that are always there that would make it seem as if that's the pathway for us to feel free. But in the end, it's just going to lead us to frustration. Basically, what he's saying is this. How happy is the man who doesn't or who believes that godless people don't have the key to happiness? How joyful is the man who doesn't get his relationship advice from reality TV? How happy is the man who can spot the foolishness from a mile away and would say, as appealing and enticing and as satisfying as it may be, I'm not going to go there. It's not going to lead me towards joy. But he doesn't stop there. Right? If your whole life is spent avoiding sin, sidestepping what's wrong, then you may be good and that may lead you towards the path of being self-righteous, but it's not going to lead you towards the path of satisfaction. Any more than uh, moving the trash cans out of your driveway is going to lead you to have a good vacation. You move the trash cans out of your driveway so that you can go somewhere. And so what he's saying is before we go, before we pursue this joy that God has for us, the first thing that we have to do is we have to sidestep the foolishness that comes our way. And one of the great ways to do that is community, godly counsel, and we'll get to that here. But uh, the very next thing that we see here is this. Is it's not just that we sidestep um, uh, the wicked insight of the sinful world that we live in, but we savor the goodness of God's word. Look here at verse two. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he, med he meditates on it day and night. Do you see that word right there? Verse one starts off and says, how happy. And then verse two starts off with the words and said, his delight. It's this very good thing. This is more than just instructions to follow. God is after not just our obedience, but our joyful obedience. That somebody looks at the instructions of the Lord, what he's saying is there's so much delight in it that day and night they can't get enough of it. They savor it. This is not 
we come to God's word as if we're trying to cram for a test to get all that stuff into our mind. And then as soon as we're done with the test, we're done with God's word. But this is the posture of you sitting with your favorite song. And you repeat it over and over in your head. And it turns over and it's so sweet and you enjoy it so much that you can't help for it to come out. A few weeks ago, I was in Detroit with some uh, friends and we went to the Motown Museum. And they've got this little, uh, this film that you watch about the history of all that stuff that went on. And throughout the film, there's all of these songs that, that come through. And what you found, right, when, when you put a whole bunch of black people in a room and Motown songs come on, uh, regardless of if they can sing or not, they just start to sing and belt out. So you've got a room of folks that don't know their parts, but everybody's singing. And then throughout the rest of the day, do you know what you found? They kept singing. And they hummed the words of the song because it was so sweet. As he talks about the person that is joyful in this life, he's saying their delight is in the instruction of the Lord. Now, where is this found? Where is God's instruction found? It's like we talked about at the start. In the pages of Scripture, Dave's word, this is where God speaks to us. And just a quick note here, when David or whoever wrote this psalm, the instruction that they talked about was not this whole book that we have here, but it was the first five books. The Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the most like, yeah, like ruliest, if you could use that word, books with the most like rules in it, the stuff that you and I hate to read. And what he's saying is, that's my favorite song. I enjoy it. It's good. Why is it good? Because he sees something in it that you and I don't see. Psalm 119, 18 is a great prayer to pray. And it starts off and it says this, Lord, open my eyes so that I can see wonderful things in your word. Do you know what he saw in the word that you and I don't see? We can tend to read God's word and feel like all the judgment and the hard parts are in capital letters and bold. And all the promises are in small and fine print, but that's not what he saw. As he reads the instruction that God gives, what he sees is God is providing instruction on how you and I sinful people can have relationship with him. He doesn't see all of these rules and these laws. Do you know what he sees? He sees Adam and Eve that sinned against God that ran from him. He sees a picture of a God unprovoked telling them that he's going to fix the mess that they made up and then providing them with instructions on how we can be brought close. What he sees in the book of Leviticus is not boring things to read. What he sees is how people that are dirty can be made clean and actually find themselves in God's presence full of joy and not fear. Let me show you a piece of text. Leviticus. Chapter 16, it's going to be here on the screen. Verses 29 and 30. I can imagine that this is what he says. This is my delight 
and it's joyful. Leviticus 16 is all about the day of atonement, the day that God is going to atone for their sins. And on this day as the sacrifices are offered, he says this, this is to be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you are to practice self-denial. Look, and do no work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. So this diverse crowd is to do no work. Why? Because atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you. And you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Your, uh, before the Lord. So what he's trying to bring out here is this. On the day that you're going to be cleansed for your sins, it's not going to be as a result of any work that you do. That's sweet for anybody that's trying to work for their forgiveness. And so what he's saying is, God, as I read your word, this is what I get. This is what I see. It's not this big rule book. It's this story of this pathway to relationship with him. And do you know what you and I have? We have a more fuller Bible than he did. That's full of more examples of people that have done worse stuff that should have been cast off from God's presence. It's full of David, who has a life where he's guilty of adultery and murder, yet he finds joy in the Lord. It's full of Saul, who persecuted and killed God's people. And on his pathway to continue to try to uh, oppose God's will, do you know what God does? He comes in unprovoked and tells him, I'm going to fix the mess that you made and I'm going to use you to go and proclaim to folks how good I am. And so what he says is, the person that is really joyful is the person that savors this truth. It's their meditation. Day and night, they constantly fill their, their hearts and their souls with it. Christian meditation is not the emptying of our minds. It's the filling of our minds with something, with God's word, something that makes us joyful. People don't get satisfaction from emptiness. We eat food because we get satisfaction from being filled with something of substance, and that's what God's word does. We turn it over in our head. We fill ourselves with it, and he's saying that the more that I do this, the more of a delight that it is question is, is God's word delightful to you? Do you wake up in the morning eager to read and to see the things that God has for you? Do you wake up every morning saying, God, I know that today I'm going to try to work for your grace and for your forgiveness. I know that today I'm going to work to be validated in the eyes of the guy or the girl that I hope will be my spouse one day. Today, I know that I'm going to work to try to get validation and joy from the job that I have. But instead, Lord, it's sweet because I know I can come to your word and I don't have to work for a thing. Jesus has done all of that for me. If you read God's word and you're his child and it's nothing but bitter to you, you're doing it wrong. I love coffee. Um, and one of the things, 
right? Yeah, like Mo said last week. I love coffee, and one of the things that I constantly get from people that don't like coffee, how would you, I don't like it because it's bitter. Um, and I say, well, uh, how would you define coffee? And they would say Starbucks, and I would say, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's like somebody saying, ah, uh, I'm not going to try this steak, this filet mignon, because I don't like red meat. And I say, well, what red meat have you had? And they say, Taco Bell. And I would say, no shade to anybody that loves that, but I'd just say, you're doing it wrong. Listen, when, when, when coffee is made and prepared right, you take your time with it when you have somebody that knows how to make it. Now, it's not bitter. Now, you can taste the sweetness in it. And I've converted many a person <laughs> by bringing them to my house and providing them with, now, this is the sweetness of coffee. And what he's trying to say is this is, you know, God's word is so sweet. And it's sweet to people that have spent their life in bitterness because they failed to forgive somebody. But then when they meet a God that has gone to great lengths to forgive them of their sins free of charge and they see the love that comes from restored relationship and they practice and do that same thing, what they find out is that the bitterness of unforgiveness is replaced by the delight of forgiveness and restored relationship. That's the beauty. That's what we get here in God's Word. So many people miss out on the delight of God's word. So if we take this lens and apply it to the Bible, say, all right, John, how do I do this? How do I try God's word? Here's a few things that you can do. One, read it. Commit to reading it daily. You do not need a degree. You don't need to be a pastor. It's written in plain language so anybody can read it. If you don't have one or you don't have one that you can read and know what it means, reach underneath your chair and take that one. We chose the translation that we did right here because it's plain and we want everybody to have access to the sweetness of God's word. Repeat it. Converse, talk about it, spend time with folks. This past week, Mike uh, came to my crib, and as we go and run errands, um, I start to talk to him about Psalm 1, and what he says is, man, it's crazy. I was just this morning, uh, it, uh, I had coffee, and I think he had Starbucks, so he did it wrong, but I had coffee with a guy, and we talked about Psalms 1, and so we spent the next hour and a half talking about the things that we've learned and God used it, one, to provide a good illustration for this sermon and two, to encourage my soul. One of the best ways that we can get God's word into our hearts is to practice it. And so here's what we do. We read it. Doesn't matter how much. Out of something that you read, something, take a small phrase with you. Take a small word with you. Just say, this is going to be the thing that I keep in my back pocket the whole day, and I'm going to pray that God would give me the grace to do it. Do you know how else we can work it down into our hearts? Pray it. 
So we take it, say that you read through this psalm. Say you read through Psalm 1. Say you're a part of this church and you've already made the commitment to pray for the rest of the folks that, that are a part of this church. Then after you read through Psalm 1 and you see the names that are on this list, start praying, Lord, I pray that your word would not just be a delight to me, but that your word would be a delight to Carmesia today. That your word would be a delight to Katie today. That your word would be a delight to Charles today. That you would help him to avoid the advice of sinful people, Father. But you would help him to really rejoice in the delight that we have in your word. It's the answer for every insecurity that we have. It's the consolation for every problem that comes our way. Take a small verse and carry it with you the way that your grandma used to carry little snacks in, your, in her purse. So when you'd be at church and get antsy, what she did was she always had something for you. Carry God's word like that so that whatever comes your way, you always have something for it. So we sidestep, we savor, and look at the outcome here in verse 3. We stand. Verse 3 says this. He is like a tree. The person that does this, He's like a tree planted by flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Listen, even if you stay away from sin, you're not going to find joy if you stay away from the Bible too. Charles Spurgeon says, if God's word is not your delight, this blessing doesn't belong to you. But if it is your delight, and if it starts to become your delight state, more and more that you read it and spend time with it and find that it's true, what he says is this, that he's like a tree that's planted, that he stands. There's a stability there. He won't quickly get knocked down re, 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 uh, regardless of what comes his way. There's a durability. He's planted right here beside streams of flowing waters. And what this is, is he's planted in a place that regardless of the circumstances that comes his way, he has a stream of life that is not dependent on the storm. So regardless of if there's rain, shine, or drought, the person that loves and gets God's word has the ability not just to stand, but to thrive. That a tree that's planted by streams of water doesn't look to the clouds to provide rain because it has all that it needs. The person that is rooted in God's word does not look to the clouds of human approval to provide for him or her fulfillment because it has a stream. This is what Christ meant when, when he said, yo, I've got food that y'all don't know anything about. That it's this stream planted by flowing water. There's a durability that it's real even if it's not visible. that bears its fruit, it's fruitful. That what, that he would say like the great poet, you know, put me anywhere on God's green earth and I'll triple my worth. There's fruit here that comes. And not just fruit, but look, it's fruit that comes in its season. What does that mean? Have you ever found yourself in a season of suffering? 
where you need patience, but patience is like your car keys. You can never really find it when you really need to go somewhere. Have you been in a place where you've been in a trial and what you need is hope and endurance? And it's like batteries in your house that you can never find it when your remote goes out? That what he's saying is the person that is full of God's word, the person that believes that the pathway to joy is paved with the pages of scripture, the person that really believes that, do you know what will take place? Is they'll bear fruit in their life when they need it the most. When they're in trial, what's going to come out is Psalm 94, 19, when the cares of my heart are, are many, it's your consolations that cheer my soul. What we find is an answer for every problem and insecurity and frustration. Here in God's word, all of it is there, and it's ready for the taking. And the person that savors God's word, enjoys that. And lastly, it says here, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does, he prospers. Listen. This picture of this tree is not exempt from seasons of drought. What he's trying to say here, though, is that the Seasons of drought that come on the life of this tree as well as on the life of us won't have the same impact on us. We're not free from hard seasons. We're free from the uh, negative effect of hard seasons. And whatever he does, he prospers. Joshua 1 James 1, like we read, Psalms 1, all of these have this same phrase about the prosperity and the success that comes from God's word. It links God's word and its place in our lives to a happy ending that doesn't end. I said I had three points. Don't be concerned. The last two are extremely quick. (laughs) Verse 4 and 5. Here is the alternative to all of what he described. It says here, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff, right? What's chaff? Chaff is like corn husk or on the outside of coffee when you roast it. It's this flaky crust where what takes place, what chaff is the opposite of a tree. It's not rooted. It does not stand. And something as small as a book dropped on a table That wind can cause it all to blow away. And what he's saying is the wicked are like this. Those who don't have their hope anchored in God's word, they are like this. They are like the chaff that blows away. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. What he means by that is this. What he's not saying is that those that don't walk with God won't look successful in this life. They will, but he points us not to judge their success by what goes on here, but to look forward. Look there at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up where? In the judgment. So what he tells us is this. Evaluate the success of something not by a snapshot, not by an Instagram post, 
but by a time-lapse camera. Somebody that jumps off of a plane skydiving without a parachute can take a snapshot of themselves and say, look at me, I'm flying. And it would be easy to believe that, listen, if all you had was a snapshot. But if you have a time-lapse camera that shows us where he started and where he'll end, and you look at that, then what you say is, ah, if I just looked at a snapshot, it would look like I should come to you if, if I want to know what joy's like. But because I've got the whole picture, I see how quickly you fall, and I see how sure you will not stand. And so as he reminds us of God's truth, what he's saying is this, right? Don't dictate who you'll listen to by Instagram posts. Instead, read history. Trust God's word. See that things do not go well for people who do not believe and trust in God. There is a happy ending for everybody that puts their trust in God's word. There is a sad ending that is sure to come for everyone that does not. The difference maker, verse 6, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Verse 1 through 3, it doesn't call the man righteous. Verse 6 does. I think it's introduced in verse 6 for the first time because if you start off with how joyful or how happy is the righteous man, we would tend to think, I haven't been that. But righteousness isn't defined in God's word by how well we perform, but who it is that we trust in. And verse 1 through 3 paints a picture of a man that trusts in God's word, that trusts in God's word to be made clean, that trusts in God's word, that their life is oriented around what God says is true. And here's the beauty. Jesus fills out the instruction of the Lord. If we could look at Psalms 1 and say, this is a story, who's it about? We could sit back like St. Augustine and say, I think this is a story about Jesus. Every one of us, if we had these two choices laid out in front of us, we would have done what Adam and Eve did. God started off and gave them the same thing. Hey, I want you to be joyful. Uh, Don't touch. Instead, Obey my word and live. And with that choice, they did what we all do. We know that it's wrong. We know we should stay away, but we can't. But there was one man, and do you know what he, he, he did? Jesus came in, and he successfully sidestepped every influence of evil. Even Satan himself came to tempt Jesus, and he passed that test. And he didn't just pass that test. But he lived his life out of hivering God's word. He lived his life meditating on God's word. Everything out of his mouth was God's word. And he stands in verse 3. You and I are the fruit that he's born long after his death here on this earth. But he is forever living and for all eternity. 
eternity, Jesus is that strong tree planted by these streams of water that is constantly bearing fruit. Jesus did for us what you and I couldn't do. And the difference maker in all of this is the way that you and I relate to God's word. Do we trust that? If we do, then here's the assurance, here's the the good news, right? When it says here, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, it's not just that he knows, he's informed about what's going to take place, but he is very much involved. This is more than a God that just gives us the right option to choose. This is the very God that guarantees the outcomes. This is the God that, the, the very God that said, let there be light, and there was light. The very God that said his son will die and he'll raise him from the dead and he did that is the very God that says this way to happiness. And that's the choice. The entirety of our lives is that one choice. Whose voice are we going to listen to to find happiness? God has made it readily available in his word to all of us. All of us that find ourselves facing the wrong choice can rejoice in the fact that his word reminds us that even as we've made the wrong choice, there is forgiveness for us because there's a God that pursues us. What choice will you make? I want you to know You have to make a choice. Psalms 1 ends in, has two extreme ways. Everlasting joy or everlasting torment. There is no middle. And so if you're here today and you say, John, I still need to think, I still need to decide, I'm not sure, I want you to know that that that's, Fine in the sense of we can't force you to decide, but I do want you to know indecision is a decision. Indecision is a decision to question and not trust God's word. St. Augustine says this, God has promised forgiveness for your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow for your procrastination. The Bible is a record of the sweetness, of the freeness of what it is that God provides to all of us that would repent and put our trust in him and to all of us that trust him. It is a never-ending well of happiness and joy. I pray that we would be a church that centers our lives, our conversations, our prayers, our hopes and dreams, and ultimately our decisions on listening to God's voice. The pathway to joy is paved with the pages of scripture. We want that to be true of our church. And if you're here and you say, I don't know where to start, start on Wednesday night and come here and enjoy as we gather around God's word. Start with somebody here and ask them if you could just sit down and read God's word with them. My prayer is that we would make that the center of our life together as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty and the sweetness of what you provide in your word. The fact that you guarantee um, outcomes, Father. You can 
promise us that all things work together for the good because you're the one that controls how things work together, Father. Help us not to treat you as if you're a liar standing in the way of our joy. Help us to be reminded that Jesus Christ sacrificially gave himself, Lord, to prove that walking in the way that you have designed works, Father. Lord, he raised from the dead to provide us with the power to do the thing. So I pray that you would give us that same power, that trust and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.